Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Patellofemoral pain is a challenge for patients and clinicians alike. It affects people of all ages and all levels of activity. Over the past decade or so, the way we understand patellofemoral pain, what causes it, how to manage it, has evolved from a very biomechanical focus on things like the alignment of the joint, the foot posture, the hip, to embracing a more rounded biopsychosocial model of musculoskeletal pain. And the clue for today is there in the name, biopsychosocial. We're drilling into the pain and psychological features of patellofemoral pain today. Professors Bill Vicenzino and Michael Rathliff join me to share the results of the recent consensus they led to establish the clinical and research priorities for patellofemoral pain. Both are leading lights in the field of musculoskeletal pain conditions. Bill is a clinician scientist and professor of sports physiotherapy at the University of Queensland in Australia, and Michael is a physiotherapist and professor at the Department of Health Science and Technology and the Centre for General Practice at Aalborg University in Denmark. Bill, Michael, welcome to the JOSPT Insights podcast. Thank you, Claire. It's uh, great to be invited along again and uh, looking forward to talking about patellofemoral pain. Likewise, um, thanks for the invitation and I look forward to to talking about one of my big interests and, and the joint project that our group did. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to hearing all about this project because we're going to focus a bit, at least to start with, on a consensus paper that we published in JOSPT in the January issue. And I guess, Bill and Michael, you're both really well known in the broad musculoskeletal rehabilitation research and clinical field, I think, for your research and clinical contributions. You really embody that clinician scientist profession, if you like. I think many JOSPT Insights listeners will know your excellent and your really relevant, really clinically relevant research, particularly in lower limb pain conditions like lower limb tendinopathies, like uh, plantar heel pain and patellofemoral pain, which is what we're going to talk about today. So I alluded to the consensus statement that we are going to talk about today. That was the results of a consensus process to establish clinical and research priorities for this patellofemoral pain field. So Bill, let me start with you. Why did we need consensus on pain and psychological factors in patellofemoral pain? Well, thanks thanks to the journal for publishing our paper. It was a reasonably large group activity. Why did we choose pain and psychological factors in patellofemoral pain? Very interesting question. We have this network that meets every several years, started about 2009. The early years as most clinicians would probably appreciate and still enact. We view patellofemoral pain quite from a mechanical perspective, biomechanical perspective, an overuse perspective. Increasingly over the the years, we've come to appreciate that the pain part of it is is probably as important as or a very integral part of the mechanics. So I guess we've noticed over the last probably five to eight years uh, leading into this activity that Increasingly, people were trying to explain the pain component. And to do that, it generally was broken down into quantitative sensory testing or trying to get some physiological surrogates of pain. And then the psychological features, which are increasingly being considered in uh, musculoskeletal conditions, 
that become persistent and chronic. There's an increasing awareness of that. And there was an increasing body of literature. Prior to this, there were two groups that published uh, systematic reviews, one on psychological factors and one on pain features. And uh, we took it from there as a group that we would update those systematic reviews and then go about a systematic way of deciding which of these are important and which are important to research and which are important to clinical practice. I think an interesting thing is more a meta research level on how should we as researchers spend our time? What is important to, to research? Because I know we're all in a common understanding. If we could have just updated the two systematic reviews, which was sort of the, the backbone of, of what we did, but that's what's out there. But I think what we were also really interested in was to try and get a deeper insight into what's actually important from healthcare practitioners and also patients on where should we uh, direct our efforts in these two uh, larger areas. So um, for me, one of the most exciting things to try and direct more of our attention to what the end users, both patients and also healthcare practitioners, think would be uh, important. Great point, Michael, because it, there was an element of disparity in the information that's coming through, and it was very hard for both researchers and clinicians to make most of it. So one of our underlying aims was to try to coalesce it and get an agreement of, about what we should focus on. So that, that was a good point to make. Yeah, and I know both of you are really passionate about bridging that gap between research and practice as well. And it strikes me that, you know, often clinicians, the folks who are at the coalface dealing with these problems on a day-to-day basis are often a few steps or sometimes many steps ahead of where research is at. And that's not a criticism of research. It's just, that's a fact of life. Research is a bit reactive in that sense. So I wonder, is this an opportunity to try to gather the feedback from the clinical perspective of, you know, what should we as research? focus on so that we can best help clinicians help the patients that they're working with. Touche. I think it's exactly what we should be aiming for and think together with Bill and some ECRs as well, Liam and Simon Johansson, we've also tried to do even more on that in parallel with uh, with doing what's future workshops to both engage patients and also clinicians to try and evolve rehab, looking at rehab of patellofemoral pain 2.0 and take all the experiences from both what the patients find is challenging, but also all the opportunities and areas ripe for change from the clinicians. And I think one of the interesting things from that project, which will hopefully soon be published as well, is this whole focus on all the psychosocial challenges and that it's not just purely a biomechanical problem, which aligns perfectly with what we also saw in the consensus report we are discussing, because there's a lot of clever insights that we sometimes miss if we just stick with our line of, is it a knee exercise or a hip exercise? And sometimes we lose perspective. It is challenging to reconcile clinical practice, individual clinicians' experience and patients' experiences with trying to be systematic in the research of it and controlling factors. So it is a challenging space. And and probably I sense from Michael, definitely for me, it's one that is exciting to work in, but somewhat fraught because everyone's got a different perspective of the same entity. And when you come out with the results, even though you involve as many people as you can uh, logistically, it still is a work in progress, so to speak. 
Absolutely. And I think that's a beautiful segue to get into how did you go about this process? So we're going to hear in a moment about the results of this consensus on pain features and psychosocial or psychological features in patellofemoral pain. But let's first set the scene with a short overview of what you did and how you kind of set about getting the people in the room and getting the consensus. So the whole process actually took quite a bit of time. First, we uh, we spent uh, much more time than what I've been used to in trying to both establish a good protocol for how to do it, but also making a lot of considerations like how do we actually develop the steering committee? How do we engage a wider community? How do we make certain that it's not just a club, an isolated club that you can't get into, but that we really try to engage and also ensure there's a level of representation from both ECRs, senior people, different professions, just in brief, we started out with updating the two systematic reviews that, that Bill highlighted, and they are published as a supplementary appendix together with the consensus uh, report. And then based on the findings of these two updated systematic reviews, we, uh, we did online surveys, both together with healthcare practitioners and also patients. And just that on its own can be something we can expand on because trying to uncover the research and clinical priorities from online surveys where you want to engage both clinicians and also patients, it's really challenging. I think that's one of we have to, to attack our consensus, but the limitations is that it was difficult to engage patients. That I think for the future, there's some, some things that we could try and tinker with here to make it better. And then we use the information here to, to actually do a presentation at the retreat, the patellofemoral research retreat we had in, uh, in Milwaukee, where these findings were discussed as a group with uh, all the attendees that, want to, that wanted to, uh, to participate in this uh, process. So it was sort of like a three-stage process, both based on what we know and also trying to look out into clinicians and patients, and then finally also engaging with our peers and I think it's nice to have this sort of background because it can be tempting, I think, to look at the final published paper and think, oh, yeah, you know, distill it down to a key result or a couple of key results and not really get a good sense of all of the work that's gone in the background, particularly really trying hard to engage the key end user groups as you've done. And, and we all know that research is an iterative process doors and opportunities that can open for the next stages in this research. And we might get to talk about that a little bit later. Bill, can I get you to share the key messages? So you've done all of this work, this three-step process that Michael's just described. What did you find? Before I get to the findings, you know, we're very keen and I'd like to make it clear to the listener that we're very aware of it looking like a meeting of mates and that we were very we spent a lot of time trying to engage broadly. Okay, what did we find? So the, the uh, systematic reviews found five pain features in our quantitative sensory tests and nine psychological factors in the survey and then in the meeting we discussed and, and got over 70% agreement to have something uh, as a priority for research or clinic. And quite interesting, none of the quantitative sensory testing really was agreed to being something that should be done in clinic. And apart from the thermal pain thresholds, probably the most striking and the most uh, voted were psychological factors, pain catastrophizing, pain self-efficacy, free or avoidance beliefs. Those kind of things came up quite strongly as being important clinically and also being important to, to research more. And the systematic reviews drew in work that a lot of PhDs have done, like Liam McLaughlin, Demilo De Silva, Sinead Holden, Ben Smith, 
that actually showed that the more severe cases of patellofemoral pain tend to exhibit kinesiophobia and fear avoidance type behaviours. And so, you know, it's not surprising that that flowed. I would add from my experience of the research we've done before and and what's been done before, not just our group, um, it is the severe persistent cases where you might want to think about this. So actually to think of all patellofemoral pain as, as being fear avoidance issues and you know, pain self-efficacy issues is erroneous. It's not what's being said. None of the findings are of clinical psychological problems or using psychological tests, uh, which show that in severe cases of patellofemoral pain, they're worse than less severe in those measures, and that where you can measure asymptomatic people, that it's more likely to have higher values in the patellofemoral pain group. And we also delved into which aspects of clinical practice and which aspects of research might these be important in, you know, like treatment planning versus prognosis and that. And I'd, I'd encourage the reader to go and look at it. We've got a neat figure which shows it quite clearly, especially if you're going to research it. I think it'd be a, a resource to go to. Absolutely. And we'll link to the paper in the show notes. So if people check out the show notes, they'll be able to get directly to the paper. Michael, I'm keen on your take on the clinical implications here, because what I found really interesting reading the results was that at the survey stage, and folks will remember that this was three steps. So part of it was a survey. And then the next part was having the in-person meeting to discuss and get the nuance out. And it was really interesting that at the survey stage, you didn't get agreement on anything. And it was kind of at the next step where there was a lot of discussion and and sort of meeting and, and talking about and talking through things where things progress. So what I took from that was that treating patients with patellofemoral pain to manage that pain is complex. And Bill's kind of alluded to some of the, the complexity there in, in different presentations. So what's your take home for clinicians listening today? What would you encourage them to do when they're back in clinic tomorrow or in the next few days? So now you're touching upon lots of interesting uh, things. And I'm still thinking about what Bill said, because Sometimes we're sort of like reductionistic when we talk about patients with patellofemoral pain. Then I could think of Charles, who's uh, 12. He just uh, enjoys soccer. He's been having knee pain for 12 days. He has a bit of patellofemoral pain. But I also remember uh, Simona, who's a 29-year-old, who's been suffering on and off for patellofemoral pain for the last 10, 12 years after she went on a training camp. Never really recovered from, uh, from that onset of knee pain. So I think there's something about the heterogeneity and also this accumulation of associated challenges or problems that these patients face that we somehow need to be very aware of. It makes me think actually of a, of a case that we had in one of our qualitative studies recently, a young girl who was, uh, I think she was 18 or 19, and she talked about her experience of patellofemoral pain, which extended back a couple of years where she kind of explained to that in the beginning, she was a soccer player, and then she had a bit of pain every time she played and when she ran sprints and so on. And she went through this phase of uncertainty. And why do I have pain when I sprint? My teammates don't really have pain. And then she started to wonder and make up her own explanations for, well, it's actually, we have weak knees in my family. It runs in the family. So she started to have an understanding of why it was that she had pain. Then suddenly she couldn't really play with her team because the knee pain got so severe. And she started to consult a healthcare practitioner, which and that was sort of the center of the interview. And here she explained all this uncertainty and being worried. And she also discussed how her identity had shifted from being a soccer player 
to then being torn between wanting to get back but not being able to be part of her former team. So this, and I know this is also part of the ACL literature and career-ending sports injuries, that some of these people also suffer from a loss of identity because they have to transfer into someone else. And I think for, for us as clinicians and researchers, we need to be curious about what they experience due to their pain. And for a young kid who's had pain for 12 days, keep it simple. But for those with a long history of, of a pain complaint, I think we need to be very curious about their experience, understand the challenges and the lived experience they have, and then try to trouble solve together with them to figure out how to either find a, a new way of getting valued activities into their day-to-day -day life or how to progress back into sport if that is a wish that they have. The survey of the patients, although we pilot tested it, we had a lot of non-responses because in retrospect, it was probably too long. But what Michael's saying there about the heterogeneity of the group probably is shown in our survey of telephone patients that responded. It, it's one of the reasons why we didn't get a 70% consensus in that group. The other thing that I didn't point out is that at survey, the clinical and research things, there was agreement on pain catastrophizing, fear avoidance belief, and kinesiophobia. So that, that, that were the only things that were consistent, but the healthcare professionals thought that was important. So it's quite, um, quite interesting the way different ideas come together as groups and probably represent the heterogeneity of the population. Absolutely. And Bill, I want to stay with you and just talk a little bit about in the sports injury world, it strikes me that we often fall back, I think, into a very biomechanical way of thinking about injury and pain. Whereas I'm thinking of Peter O'Sullivan's approach is to ask people to tell me your story, which is really getting at some of the things that you were talking about, Michael, with this curiosity and trying to understand what it is about this person that's important and what, what's important for them in their lives. And I wonder, Bill, what your thoughts are about that. Why do we have this kind of weird approach in, in sports medicine or sports rehabilitation that's biased on the, on the biomechanics, at least from my perspective? As physical therapists, we're very physical. I was head of a physio department for you know, a few years and I talked to a lot of students at year one, year two, and they all knew what physiotherapy was. It's very physical. They didn't like doing psychological lectures. They complained about it. Amazingly, the fourth years, the towards the end of the program, we're telling the first years in these meetings, no, you need that. So it's quite, it's probably an evolutionary thing. Most patients that come to a physiotherapist, I don't know if it'd be different with a psychologist, generally tend to associate their ills with something they've done. And it generally is a physical entity. I think what Michael introduces is, is quite important is to ask what matters to them. And in asking what matters to them, they'll tell you jumping or a sport. But then what does that matter in the whole context of their, their existence and therefore the social because if you just say, here, do this exercise, may not mean anything to them unless they can see the link between that and their broader context. Yeah, and Michael, you also mentioned a clinical case of someone who talked about, you know, my family has this problem, so I've got weak knees, and this whole idea of the beliefs around pain or the beliefs around a problem with my body. So, and I guess that taps into the fear avoidance, fear, fear avoidance beliefs aspect. So how do we approach that? That's where the exercises sometimes come in. I, I came from a background where I thought it was, if it was 10 repetition maximum or 15, that we really had to tinker with the exercise. But today I'm more of, of the belief, my own belief that exercises can be used to, to challenge these uh, beliefs in patients. For example, with Timona who had uh, weak knees, why not use the exercises to try and challenge that to use positive re-encouragement when she 
does any sort of exercise. Wow, I have quite strong knees, give her a lot of good experience being in control of the movement, feeling that she can do something without aggravating her pain, improving her self-efficacy. So I think depending on what the specific belief is, I think exercises, as an example, could be used as one of the, the ways to challenge her beliefs about why she has pain and that she can't participate in walking exercises or running because she has weak knees and that will damage my knee, which will lead to a subsequent loss of castlets and I'll get an early knee replacement. So I think exercises work for a lot of different ways, but not only the physiological stimuli that it can provide. Nice. I like it. And I also like it because it's a, it's a fairly simple strategy and I don't mean simple in a condescending way, but I, I think it's, it's also a concern. It's like I'm a physio. I studied physiotherapy or physical therapy because I want to function as a physio. I'm not a psychologist and I've certainly felt like I don't have the skills to function as a psychologist. So why are you trying to turn me into a psychologist and working through cognitive behavioral therapy and all of these other approaches? So I, I really like that simple strategy of using the skills that are your core physical therapy skills skills as a way of helping patients to work through some of these beliefs and challenging these beliefs. Now, I'm going to start to wrap us up. And Bill, I'm really keen to hear what are the next steps for this international collaboration group? And I think you've got a few thank yous and people that you'd like to acknowledge. I guess the the first thing that we must do is acknowledge the great work that the people like Sinead Hold and Liam McLaughlin, Benjamin Smith, Danilo De Silva all young career academics that put a lot of hours into doing the systematic review and the survey work and analysis than that. It uh, makes the work of people like me and Michael a lot easier when you have people like that, very capable people. You'll hear a lot more of them. That's why I think it's important to mention their name. There's a new project that we've just started. Natalie Collins is leading it. We're looking at um, developing or understanding health-related core domains for patellofemoral pain. Hasn't been done before. In doing this, we'll probably tease out, you know, this issue of where does the mechanics fit in it overall. We're developing that in the process. We've had meetings where there's scoping review going on and there'll be a survey and some nice new techniques that, that are being developed to, to come along. And hopefully in 2023, the group will meet again in Bologna. So we're looking at dom core domains as well as progressing this work here. And, you know, the listener might say, well, so what? So what about core domains? It directs researchers and clinicians to think about what's important in patellofemoral pain. We've got to engage patients in that, clinicians. What's important in patellofemoral pain to measure? Because when you have a patient with you, you need to see what's important to them. You need to measure it. You need to intervene. Then you need to remeasure it. And that's fundamentally all good medicine and, and physical therapy. So that's the so what. We're trying to standardize that so that in 20, 30 years' time, when we've collected all this data, we can do reasonably good systematic reviews and meta-analysis, all using the same outcome measures, all agreed outcome measures. That means something. That's the that's the, the what we're currently doing, which is uh, keeps us uh, interested and excited at progressing the field and doing it with a lot of capable, young and uh, up-and-coming academics. That sounds like a lot of great in-depth work. Michael, I'm going to give the final word to you. What do you look forward to from this international collaboration group on patellofemoral pain in 2022 and beyond? I'm just excited about this gradual shift that we all witnessing going from biomechanics, using imaging to study what's going on, to having a more broad perspective, not neglecting the importance of understanding biomechanics, imaging, the pathophysiology, 
but expanding our uh, our focus. Then maybe in a few years we'll merge with the low back pain field, and we're going to be talking about general musculoskeletal field and not being so focused on if it's in the low back or the knee. So I'm really excited about the gradual shift I see from the wider community these years because I think that. That's going to have more impact on clinical practice. It's going to improve outcomes and it's going to just be exciting to manage, help patients with patellofemoral pains because I'm going to see more clinically applicable tools to actually support clinical practice. My thanks to you both for sharing that passion and a little bit of a roadmap. And I'm not setting a roadmap in stone, of course, but I think it's helpful for us in the clinical world and in the broader research world to have a sense of what's coming in the future and feel like the things that are challenging me in the clinic tomorrow are the things that researchers are really trying to tackle in a robust and rigorous way. So Bill Vicenzino, Michael Rathliff, thanks for joining me on JOSPT Insights. Thank you very much. Great to see the journal come along under your stewardship and all these innovations. Thanks for asking me. Likewise. Been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm